Greetings, everyone. This is Mystical America. I am your beloved host, Isaac. Uh, gotta be honest with you guys, I thought about quitting the podcast. I thought about throwing it all away. Because at the end of the day, um, one of my core values is being a defeatist. Being a true defeatist. Being someone who is well-practiced, well-versed in the sublime art that is giving up, giving in, dropping out, turning away from, rejecting, okay? Knowing when to quit is an art. But I have decided that now is not the time to quit. I mean, I just got out of college. I'm trying to find a way to make money and not want to die at the same time. And truth be told, this podcast doesn't really make me any money at all. It makes me no money at all. But there is no form of payment that is quite as valuable as all the beautiful feedback and love I get from the people who actually listen to this podcast. And it's a really beautiful thing. So beyond that, I like talking about this shit. I still nerd out about it. I still enjoy making these things. I love it. So I'm going to keep doing it. With that in mind, email me, mysticalamericapod at gmail.com if you want to be on the show to talk about uh, religion in America, mysticism in America, and your experiences and encounters with those things. I want to hear from you. And beyond that, please give me a review on Apple Music, and I will give you many blessings. All right. Enjoy the show. first started going to parties, um, I found it to be a really depressing affair because most parties seem to be made up of, look, I'm not a hateful person, I'm not a judgmental person, but to be honest, they're just made up of fucking idiots. Um, I don't believe in NPCs, but you could say... NPCs, or you could just say frat bros, 
sorority girls, because that's where a lot of the first parties I went to were, were at frat row in or around there at the college houses, college apartments, and of course the fraternities. And well, I never got in, invited to a sorority, I guess, because um, I don't have enough riz for that. I'm not a quote unquote rizzler. Maybe you can tell from the podcast, but I'm kind of a fucking nerd, a cool nerd but a nerd, a geek, not really a geek, I guess I don't know, a geek seems to imply someone who like knows a lot about computers and shit, I, I don't really know anything about that, but I'm a nerd, I have neurodivergent traits, so I never really got invited into a sorority party, God knows why, I did go to a couple frat parties and various college parties, and I found the whole affair to just be extremely sad. I walked away feeling um, almost nihilistic in a way. Like, what, what is this about? Just drinking, looking to make out with some sort of blonde girl who grew up on a farm in Iowa somewhere, and there was no meaning to any of it. It was a totally meaningless pursuit. So there's gotta be better social functions than this. There's gotta be more to becoming a young adult than going to these parties and playing beer pong with some fucking jock. Well, all that changed for me when I discovered house shows. And house shows are an incredible thing. Despite, you know, underage girls, despite sexual assault allegations, despite uh, male manipulators, artsy male manipulators, there's lots of problems in the house show scene, as anyone who has spent some time there um, will tell you. There's plenty of fucked up problems, most of them caused by men. Um, you know, I'm not a man-hater. I think man ha men have a lot of, uh, problems, honestly, that, that society shoves on them. But, let's be real, a lot of the problems in the house show scene are caused by men. With some exception. But that's not what I'm here to talk about. I'm not here to talk about the negative things. What I'm here to talk about is the fact that the house show scene is where I got introduced to punk and hardcore. Now, of course, I'd known about the punk scene. Of course, I'd known about the hardcore scene. Of course, I'd listened to punk music but the reality of it is, is that, and I don't want to offend anyone by saying this, but I don't think that punk and hardcore music, except for like the really, really great bands, a lot of it is not exactly the best thing to listen to when it's recorded. 
I think there is something about the experience of going to a shitty punk show in a shitty, run-down, mold-infested basement somewhere with a bunch of sweaty 20-somethings, teenagers, and a couple of 30-year-olds in battle jackets all moshing, flailing their arms back and forth, um, people nearly getting beat up, and then other people beating the people who nearly beat that guy up. up. I think there's something about the ritualized violence of a punk show, particularly a DIY punk or hardcore show that is far more compelling than the music itself. A lot of heavy music, you know, punk, hardcore, maybe some metal, a lot of people in that scene will probably be mad at me for saying this, but I believe that there is something about punk and hardcore that is actually very religious in nature. Even though these scenes are generally almost violently opposed to organized religion, to the point of being anti-theistic or um, being into like secular Satanism, they're not big fans of organized religion. They're not big fans of Christianity in particular, I'll note. But there is something religious about the punk and hardcore show experience, especially in the DIY basement house show spaces. If you've been to one, you know what I'm talking about. There's this radical sense of community. There, a lot of these shows will provide Narcan to people who are addicted to drugs in case they overdose. A lot of these venues will provide train hoppers and traveling kids and crust punks with a place to sleep for a night or many nights or weeks. They will raise money for community members. All this in a setting which has a strict set of ethos, of values, of rules. It rejects mainstream society. It rejects materialistic culture. It rejects superficiality in favor of what it views as hyper real. That's the punk scene. PBR is the communion wine. And black, patched up, dirty, disgusting clothing is the priestly garb. You see crust punk on the street. And I mean, for me, I see a crust punk on the street, little to no money, totally rejected the life that had been set out by them or their parents, totally rejected what society wanted for them and became a traveling, train-hopping musician playing shitty folk music. Sometimes not so shitty, sorry. I like folk punk, I really do. But anyways, um, when I see that crust punk on the street somewhere in Portland or Seattle, I think that's a saint. I think that is a sannyasi. Sannyasin, I think that's the right word. Either way, there are a traveling, wandering saint who has rejected society, who has rejected the values of the world around them in pursuit of something beyond that. 
And you see that in the punk scene. You see that in the hardcore scene. So even though there may be no monotheistic God behind the punk scene, it is still nevertheless a church-like experience for people who totally reject church. It's a church-like experience for those who attend these punk shows. In college, for many of us, those who rejected the religion we grew up in, those who felt abandoned by our parents, by our peers, by the world around us, we found in punk shows, in the DIY scene, our cathedral. Our temple. So you might not think that there is a connection between mysticism and the hardcore scene. You might not think that religion and punk music would intertwine. You might think, leave that bullshit to the hippies and the deadheads. We don't have any use for that higher power crap here. But the truth is, that's just not the case. Punk has at various times become deeply intertwined with religion. And it's not just mainstream Christians trying to make cool rock music, as you might think. Our first story here begins with one of the more controversial sects of punk and hardcore. Of course, I'm referring to the straight edge movement. The straight edge movement was and is basically a bunch of hardcore and punk kids who have chosen to totally abstain from drugs, drinking, tobacco, and all that other mind-altering nonsense. Some might see them as squares, but in their minds, the straight-edge kids were true rebels to the excess and degeneracy of our age. Punks have a reputation for drunkenness and heroin abuse. The straight-edge movement said, fuck all that. We need sharp minds and sharper bodies so we can start the anarchist revolution. Something to keep in mind is that straight edge kids were also animal rights activists. They were often vegans and vegetarians. And you will see why that's important in a sec. In the same way that religious groups with ascetic or restrictive practices are often mocked by larger society, the straight edge scene was often mocked and derided by the larger punk scene. And as anyone who's met a particularly egotistical vegan or religious person knows, there's possibly some valid reasons for that. But disregarding whether the straight edge scene deserves to be praised or mocked, it is out of the 1980s New York straight edge scene that we see the rise of Krishnakor. When you think about the Hare Krishnas, you might think about groups of people dressed in orange robes, chanting the Hare Krishna mantra, dancing on the corner of a busy city somewhere. You might think about that guy with a shaved head and a beaded necklace who tried to sell you spiritual books in Los Angeles. 
Or maybe you're reminded of one of the most famous fans of the Hare Krishnas, George Harrison. There's this association in people's mind with the, uh, the hippies and the Hare Krishnas. But the hardcore scene also became entangled with the Hare Krishnas. And ironically, the Krishna core crossover almost makes more sense than the hippies being involved with the Hare Krishnas. I guess before I get into that, for people who need refreshment, the Hare Krishnas belong to a group called ISKCON. ISKCON means International Society for Krishna Consciousness. ISKCON and the Hare Krishnas probably seem like they're a new religious movement, but they're part of a much older tradition called Godya Vaishnavism. They worship the Hindu god Vishnu in the form of Krishna, and they see Krishna as the supreme deity. I think that's kind of like a common mistake people make when talking about what we call Hinduism, is that Hinduism is polytheistic. For a great deal of Hindus, there is actually one supreme force in the universe. There may be many gods and powerful entities in the universe, but there is one supreme force and consciousness. So, for the ISKCON people, for the Hare Krishna people, that is Krishna. And they worship him through the devotional yoga known as bhakti, which is a yoga of love, devotion, and ecstasy. Primarily, worship is done through chanting, which is probably what the group is most famous for, chanting Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare. Final goal of all this chanting and all their other practices is to merge with Krishna consciousness, the lover finally reunited with the beloved. Godya Vaishnavism was brought to America by A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada in 1966. And he's a fascinating guy, so maybe we'll talk about him on another episode. Hare Krishna movement and ISKCON is more serious than its ecstatic chanting and dancing implies. There are strict rules requiring followers to chant a very, very large number of repetitions of the Maha Mantra early in the morning, long before the sun rises. They practice strict abstinence from drugs, alcohol, meat, and premarital sex. In stark contrast to the long-haired, self-indulgent hippies of the 60s, male ISKCON members are required to shave their heads, wearing it bald or extremely short, as a rejection of bodily beauty. As you were listening to those rules and restrictions that the Hare Krishna slash ISKCON members follow, you might have thought to yourself that all kind of sounds similar to the straight edge rules and restrictions, and you'd be right. ISKCON has always given away free homemade vegetarian food at various centers and temples around the United States as an act of charity and devotion to Krishna. It was in the 80s during the development of the hardcore punk scene that homeless and dirt poor hardcore and punk kids around New York City would wander into ISKCON temples looking for a free meal. People like Harley Flanagan, the bassist and occasional singer of the Krishna core band, the Chromags. And he went in simply looking for free vegetarian food 
and came out realizing that him and the Krishna devotees weren't so different at all. Flanagan said that initially he made fun of these people, but with time, he became a devotee of Krishna himself. Word began to spread around the New York scene, and these Hindu punks became a notable presence at shows. Bands like the Chromags, the Woods, and Cause of Alarm laid the foundation for Krishna Corps in the 80s. But it was not till the 90s that Krishna Corps truly flourished as a scene of its own. At first, bands were just writing songs with Krishna and Vedic-themed lyrics. But as the 80s rolled into the 90s, bands began to fully immerse themselves in Krishna culture and consciousness. One of the leading figures was a man named Ray Capo, singer of foundational straight-edge band Youth of Today. After becoming a Krishna devotee, he formed the band Shelter, a band which would become one of the most influential Krishna core bands. Although, to be fair, it's not a huge genre, so um, let's say that influential might not be the right word. But uh, I want to read you some of his lyrics. See if we can pull those up. Okay, so this is from Shelter. The track is called One Concern. Well, I don't want wealth. What can it buy? What can I purchase that'll satisfy? You want success? Well, you better invest. But there's still distress. Don't buy their lie. Money in the bank. Think you're scot-free. More anxiety. False security. Desire to accumulate. It'll never satiate. Another fish takes the bait. You know it's not the answer. My one concern is not own land or sky or ocean, or get up on some stage and go through some motions. I want this iron heart of mine to soften with some emotion. My one concern to manifest devotion. And then he goes on to talk about uh, the failings of romance and conventional love. I'm not looking for a game that they call romance. I've been in that trance and it's all skin deep. But yes, I want love. That's what I'm dreaming of. I know it's there, but it ain't cheap. Don't want skin attraction, promising satisfaction, big distraction from what I really need. Scratch the itch, watch desire increase. Where's the peace? You know it's not the answer. My one concern is not own land or sky or ocean or get up on stage and go through some motions. I want this iron heart of mine to soften with some emotion. My one concern, manifest devotion. Sick. Well, with lyrics like that, Shelter and adjacent bands like 108 gained at least some notoriety, but at the end of the day, we have to remember these are obscure bands in an already underground music scene. So notoriety and influence are relative terms here, but also a true follower of Krishna doesn't really give a damn about fame anyways. Where these bands seem to have carried a lot of weight, though, was their influence in bringing people in and out of the scene into veganism and vegetarianism. Unfortunately, 
ISKCON ran into some trouble as the 90s wore on. There was child abuse happening within their boarding schools and multiple allegations of sexual abuse within the religious group. These were allegations that ISKCON had not fully recovered from, even to this day. And of course, this caused some Krishna core musicians to distance themselves from ISKCON and the Hare Krishna movement and pushed the Krishna core movement even further to the margins of the hardcore scene. Despite that, there have still been bands making Krishna core up to this day, just at a much smaller scale than in the 90s. With that, let's talk about bands you can look up and go experience the story of Krishna Kaur for yourself. A lot of the early stuff I've already mentioned here, there's not too many bands in this category, so early stuff you have bands like Chromags, The Woods, that's W-U-D-S, Cause of Alarm, that turns in the 90s into Shelter, Refuse to Fall, and 108. And then a band that came out more towards the 2000s was Prima, P-R-E-M-A, and finally, I found a California band that is making Krishna hardcore right now called Godhead. They're doing pretty cool shit, so go and check them out. All right, let's take a quick break, and then we will jump right back into our next story about music and religion right here on Mystical America. desire for selfless love a love won't be found on the TV set and can't be bought in the store we search for relationships that are full with reciprocation and only a weak person will deny that these things are temporary we're not temporary Sex. People go after sex like it's the, like the only thing in the world. But there's a time in the world, in your life, where you're not going to be able to have sex. And if you depend on it for happiness, you're in a lot of trouble because you're going to suffer. Bam! Another friend sticks to the mainstream. Another sucker subscribe to the noise. I chant and meditate in the morning is the same reason why I jump around on the stage. It's funny, sometimes people say that religion or the Hare Krishnas don't belong in hardcore. But the Hare Krishnas have been in hardcore longer than any of these people. For the second Music Meets Mysticism story I have today, we'll switch over from Hinduism to Christianity. 
but this is a form of Christianity that not as many of us Americans are familiar with. I'm talking about the Eastern Orthodox Church, which is a church that has a pretty valid claim, although claims like this are always going to be debated by someone, but they have a pretty valid claim to being one of the oldest, if not the oldest, Christian church in existence. To the outsider, the Orthodox Church can seem like a strange, exotic form of Christianity. The domed churches, the incense-filled altars all appear foreign to the average secular, Protestant, or hell, even Catholic American. There's the veneration of blessed icons, the scheduled fasting and feasting, and many Orthodox women will still veil their faces as early Christian women did. As strange as all this may seem to those outside the Orthodox Church, to the Eastern Orthodox Christian it is all simply how things have been done since the time of the Apostles. Monastic life is an essential part of Eastern Orthodoxy as well. The Church venerates many monks, hermits, ascetics, and holy wandering fools. The Orthodox Church believes there is a profound value in the pursuit of God alone, a life led in quiet prayer and seeking after Christ. This next story is about a punk who became a monk. That rhyme's almost too easy to make. I'm sorry. And after becoming a monk, he helped found one of the most fascinating zines that I've ever stumbled across. If you don't know what a zine is, it's like microbrewing for a magazine, small batch, independent publishing with cool-ass artwork. Zines can be about anything from art to feminism to sci-fi, but this zine was probably the first and only punk orthodox zine published by monks. It's called Death to the World. If you're a metalhead, and slash or you enjoy smoking copious amounts of marijuana, you might have heard of a band called Sleep. Sleep's a pretty iconic band. They basically defined the doom metal genre. Their music's heavy, fuzzy, droney, and extremely bass heavy. It's like a massive sonic wall of sound. It's the audio equivalent of trekking through Death Valley while shirtless and sun-poisoned and stoned out of your mind. Sleep's music is admittedly probably best enjoyed while under the influence of a few grams of hash and some opium for good measure. I don't know where you get opium these days, though. The band's so iconic that to this day, you can go to a random skate park somewhere and there's a good chance you'll find a dude with extremely long hair and dilated pupils shredding the bowl in a sleep dope smoker shirt. One of the founding members of this band was a guy named Justin Marler. As an 18 or 19 year old, he was involved with the 90s Bay Area punk scene, a scene that would eventually produce some very big names like Green Day, Rancid, and well, Sleep. Justin started out when Sleep was called Abestus Death, and seeing that that name sounded way too much like the infamous band Napalm Death, he convinced the members to change the name to Sleep Deprivation. 
and that was all finally narrowed down to just Sleep. Justin only played on one album with Sleep, the creatively titled Volume 1, and just as Sleep was beginning to gain fame, book shows, and get a record deal, Justin left the scene and Sleep behind him. In a recent interview, he said he was so suicidal and so depressed at the time that he would turn on the TV to a channel filled with just static and would cut himself with a razor blade in the dim electronic light on a floor lined solely with newspaper. So he left this old life behind in pursuit of a reason just to not kill himself. Justin grew up in Protestant evangelical Christianity, and he'd always been drawn to the figure of Jesus and his teachings, but he wasn't content with the churches he grew up in. He found them to be extremely hollow and far, far removed from the original church, the church mentioned in the book of Acts. Justin returned home to live with his grandmother, and it was back in his hometown of Chico, California that he met an Eastern Orthodox nun. Just a few months after meeting this nun, he journeyed to an Orthodox monastery about an hour away from his hometown. It was here at the St. Herman of Alaska Monastery in Palatino, California, that he finally found a glimpse of the peace that he had been seeking. Justin would come to stay in that monastery for many, many, many years before ever returning to the quote-unquote real world. During his time in that monastery, Justin began to attempt to find ways to bring orthodoxy to the punk scene. He and his fellow monks tried to place an ad for the monastery in Maximum Rock and Roll magazine, but were rejected. The magazine basically said, what the fuck is a monastery? We only do ads for music and zines. Well, that response actually gave the monks another idea. Screw advertising the monastery. Let's make a zine. And so, death to the world was born. And let me put it to you simply, in all honesty, and at risk of being sacrilegious here, death to the world looks badass. It has that amazing punk zine aesthetic, cut up quotes, grainy black and white photos combined with the Eastern Orthodox aesthetic, which is pretty badass in its own right. Elders, saints, and monks with their long black robes and massive beards, pictures of monastics holding up the skulls of dead saints. It's strange that this works as well as it does because this combination doesn't really make sense. Due in no small part to the incredible aesthetics of the zine and the strange crossover hit of orthodoxy and punk, Death to the World became a pretty big underground sensation. The monastery made about 12 runs of the magazine, which were shared around the world, and eventually they just simply stopped publishing the zines for reasons unknown. But years later, a group of ex-Protestant punks in Southern California converted to orthodoxy and became extremely enamored by old issues of death to the world. With the permission of the monastery, they began republishing and creating new issues of death to the world, and with this new group of folks publishing it, the zine is still active to this day. Well, in case you were wondering what the story behind the name is, on the about page of the Death to the World website, they explain the zine's name through a 
quote by St. Isaac the Syrian. The world is the general name for all the passions. When we wish to call the passions by a common name, we call them the world. But when we wish to distinguish them by their special names, we call them passions. The passions are the following. Love of riches, desire for possessions, bodily pleasure from which comes sexual passion, love of honor which gives rise to envy, lust for power, arrogance and pride of position, the craving to adorn oneself with luxurious clothes and vain ornaments, the itch for human glory which is the source of resentment and physical fear. Where these passions cease to be active, there the world is dead. Someone has said of the saints, that while alive, they were dead, for though living in the flesh, they did not live for the flesh. See for which of these passions you are alive. Then you will know how far you are alive to the world, and how far you are dead to it. Well, Orthodox Christians and Vaishnava Hindus would probably generally dislike being compared to each other. I brought these two stories into conversation today to illustrate a simple point. When we become disillusioned with the world we live in, the values it promotes, we turn to music and musical subcultures, like punk and metal. These aggressive genres give voices to the screams of disenfranchised kids and young adults across the country. For some, the music alone isn't enough, and they turn even further to religious and mystical traditions to find a clear path that thoroughly rejects the materialistic and selfish ways of our society. So next time you find yourself in a mosh pit, be careful. You might just find Jesus or Krishna. But until then, I'm Isaac. This is Mystical America. Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. Amen, 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 and good night. Thank you.